Our scripture reading this morning comes from John chapter 10, verses 1 to 10. Jesus said, Very truly I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All religions are fairy tales. That's what the preacher David Bast found scrawled on the front cover of a Gideon's Bible in a hotel room he was staying in. All religions are fairy tales. It's a cynical take, but not an uncommon one. Most of us probably have friends or colleagues or acquaintances that raise their eyebrows when they find out we're a Christian. Faith is not something that reasonable, serious people have. The Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor, in his tome, A Secular Age, remarks that not all that long ago, it would have been inconceivable not to believe in the supernatural. People unquestionably understood that powers beyond their own were at work in the world. If you got sick, you prayed against demonic forces. If you had a rich harvest, you gave thanks to God. Festivals, rituals, saints' days, holidays, all played a part in solidifying the knowledge that divine initiative undergirded all of life. Now, not so much. Now, says Taylor, belief in God is just one option among many, and it's a questionable option at that. The Enlightenment, the Industrial Revolution, scientific progress, even the Reformation played a part in the demise of a supernaturally saturated worldview. We don't really need God anymore. We can do things on our own. Religion is just a crutch. It's an opiate for the masses. It's a fairy tale to make us feel better when it's dark outside. I think even 
amongst Christians, even within the church, we aren't always sure what to do with the idea of divine presence in the world. When people say that they heard God speak to them, or that they felt God's presence in a really powerful and tangible way, we're a little skeptical, aren't we? Sure, God spoke to people and revealed his presence to them in big, powerful, tangible ways in the Bible. We're good with that. But does he still today? Can we encounter the divine? Or is faith just a matter of living the right way and following God's law and waiting until we stand in the throne room of the king before we really get to experience the presence of God? An encounter with God is exactly what Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, it's what he argues is at the heart of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Williams wrote a book about Narnia called The Lion's World, and in it he writes that C.S. Lewis was trying to recreate for the reader what it is like to encounter God. When we enter Narnia, says Williams, we enter an unfamiliar world in which we could rediscover what it might mean to meet the holy without the staleness of religious preconceptions as they appear in our culture. In other words, in a world that is skeptical of faith and religion, and in the midst of our own wonderings and skepticism that we might have an actual encounter with the divine, Lewis wants to expand our imaginations so that we might once more, with childlike faith, believe that such an encounter is not only possible, but is promised. So, we enter the land of Narnia. The story begins with the four Pevensey children, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, who go to live in the big country house of an old professor during World War II. As they explore the house, they come upon a wardrobe, and the older siblings deem the wardrobe a lost cause, but Lucy decides to explore. She climbs into the wardrobe and discovers some fur coats. She moves a little further in and finds that the wardrobe doesn't end. It keeps going, and soon there aren't coats against her skin, but branches. And there aren't pine boards beneath her feet, but snow. She steps out of the wardrobe into a snowy wood at night. And in the distance, she can see a light. And so Lucy makes her way towards that light, feeling, Lewis writes, a little frightened, but very inquisitive and excited as well. After about 10 minutes, she comes upon a lamppost. And while she's standing there wondering why there's a lamppost in the middle of an otherwise deserted wood, she hears someone behind her. Turning, she spies a very unusual kind of person. He's a man from the waist up, but with the legs and feet of a goat. He wears a red scarf around his neck, and two little horns stick up from his head. This 
is Mr. Tumnus. And he is as surprised to meet Lucy, who he calls a daughter of Eve, as she is to meet him. He asks Lucy how she has come into Narnia. Narnia? What's that? said Lucy. This is the land of Narnia, said the fawn, where we are now, all that lies between the lamppost and the great castle of Caraparabel on the eastern sea. And you, you have come from the wild woods of the west? I, I got in through the wardrobe in the spare room, said Lucy. Ah, said Mr. Tumnus in a rather melancholy voice, if only I had worked harder at geography when I was a little fawn. I should no doubt know all the, about these strange countries. It's too late now. Mr. Tumnus invites Lucy to his house for a cup of tea, and Lucy happily follows her new friend. She doesn't once question how odd all of this is, and how odd Mr. Tumnus is, and that this all ought to be a little hard to believe. Lucy's imagination has room enough for Narnia. And Tumnus tells Lucy all about Narnia, how it is always winter and never Christmas because of the rule of the White Witch. And then he breaks down and admits to spying for the White Witch and tells Lucy, who for some reason the White Witch is very interested in, that she is to run back to the land of spare um and wardrobe. And so Lucy does, stumbling back out of the wardrobe and running to find her siblings, telling them breathlessly, it's, it's a magic wardrobe. There's a wood inside it, and it's snowing, and there's a fawn and a witch, and it's called Narnia. Come and see. But they don't come and see. Peter, Susan, and Edmund are skeptical and they're even more skeptical when upon closer look, the wardrobe appears to be just a wardrobe. A jolly good hoax, says Peter, and they walk away. Lucy has encountered something beyond what can be reasonably expected in the world, and her siblings are skeptical. And well before the Industrial Revolution and the Enlightenment, another group of people were skeptical of something that didn't quite fit within their framework of how the world works. We know them by the name Pharisee. But I love the theologian Dale Bruner refers to them as the serious. And the serious had expectations of what a relationship with God looked like. It looked like Torah obedience, rules and order, and waiting for a Messiah that would come in glory and take care of their enemies. It did not look like a carpenter from Galilee who preached of a new kingdom in which the law they kept and monitored so religiously was no longer what would save them. The Sirius didn't quite like this, and so they, they followed Jesus around, and they asked him questions, trying to trip him up, trying to challenge him. And Jesus rather brilliantly responded to the Sirius with stories, with metaphors, 
with parables. He invited them to broaden their imagination, to expand their expectations. Many of these stories can be found in the Gospel of John in what are called the I Am Statements. And in today's passage from John chapter 10, Jesus makes a rather unusual I am statement. He starts by talking about a shepherd who uses a gate, whose voice the sheep know. And so we would expect Jesus to say, I am the good shepherd. And he does say this, but only after making another I am statement. He tells the serious, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. Which is a rather interesting statement. How can Jesus be both the shepherd who goes through the gate and the gate itself? Well, Scott Jose, a professor at Calvin Seminary, says that in a commentary he once read on this passage, the author recalled an encounter he had with an Arab shepherd. This shepherd was showing off his flock in the penned-in area where they slept every night. And when they go in there, the shepherd said proudly, they are perfectly safe. But the scholar noticed something. Your sheep sleep in the pen, but the pen doesn't have a gate on it. Yes, of course it does, said the shepherd. I am the gate. After my sheep are in the pen, I lay my body across the opening. No sheep will step over me, and no wolf can get in without getting past me first. I am the gate. Jesus is the shepherd and the gate. He keeps his flock safe from thieves and robbers and wolves, and in the morning he lets them out to graze. Jesus protects life. And he is the way into life, into nourishment, into green pastures, into shalom. And here's what I find so interesting about this passage. You don't actually pass through a gate. You pass through a gateway. Right? You don't pass physically through a door. You pass through a doorway. To do so... You have to push the gate aside. The gate has to give way. Which is exactly what Jesus did. He gave way. He gave away his heavenly splendor to make his home among mortals, becoming incarnate. He gave away his time and his love to those he met during his ministry. He gave away his life to die for those he became incarnate for. And in doing so, in giving way, he opened up to us a pathway into life. In entering the stable, Jesus became the gate into a kingdom unlike anything anyone had ever experienced before. 
a kingdom of flourishing, a kingdom of shalom, a kingdom that upends all our expectations, a kingdom where wolves dance with lambs and cows lay down with lions, a kingdom where children are crowned kings and queens, a kingdom where death dies and from death comes life. And so Jesus tells the Pharisees the serious, that the way into life is through him. And so what does it mean then to pass through Jesus, to enter the kingdom through Jesus? Well, we enter the kingdom through Jesus by being united with Jesus in his death and resurrection. In dying to ourselves, to the old order of things, and being raised to life through the power of the Holy Spirit, which is perhaps no better illustrated for us than in the waters of baptism. This practice, adapted from the ancient practice of submerging yourselves fully in the water and then coming up again, symbolizes this dying to self, to the old order of things, and being raised into life in Christ. Claimed by God as his child, this is the call to each one of us to put to death our pride, our mean-spiritedness, our jealousy, our vengeful spirits, our slothfulness, our lust, everything that diminishes the image of God in our neighbor and that draws us further away from God. It is the call to put to death those things and to nurture instead, cultivate the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of life, the fruit of shalom, love, Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. In this, we are united with Christ. We enter through the gate. And so, we encounter the divine. We look around and find that we are indeed living in a kingdom where the first are last the weak are made strong, and an inexplicable light shines in the darkness. So when we are faced with a difficult and tiring conversation and all we want to do is lash out in frustration and anger, Jesus says to us, I am the gate. Follow me into life. And when the person in front of you at the superstore is paying for items individually with change, Jesus says, I am the gate. When we are kind to a stranger, or we bring flowers to someone who is lonely, or we take the first steps to build a relationship, or when we experience those gifts ourselves, we encounter the presence of an incarnate God. When we open the scriptures and quiet our minds in prayer and we gather with fellow believers in worship, the Spirit assures us that God is in our midst. 
In Advent, we wait for the fullness of the kingdom of God. But we trust that in the incarnation, the gate into that kingdom has been opened. In the incarnation, the face of God is revealed to us. We are united with Christ in his death and resurrection. An encounter with the king is always just a breath away. And so this Advent, may we live in holy expectation. As we inhabit our own land of spare um, may we have the faith to believe that a wardrobe is not just a wardrobe, and a stable is in fact a palace for a king. And this world isn't just a holding ground until we see eternity, but a place where every leaf and frosted blade of grass and every hug between friends and every handshake between former enemies is a sign of the kingdom, a foretaste of what is to come and what is here now, a very real sign of the presence of God in our lives. In this land of spare um, may we listen for the voice of God that whispers to us, I am the gate, life awaits, come and see. Would you pray with me? And so, Lord God, open our eyes in eager expectation. As we wait for the coming of your kingdom, help us to trust that you are already present among us, doing a new thing, bringing peace and justice and shalom. By the power of your spirit, unite us with the incarnate Christ, that we might die to ourselves and be raised into life participating in that shalom, seeking to be agents of shalom in every corner of our lives. We rejoice in you, O God, and we long for your coming. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.